0: Chapter Forty Two, Part Two of Leviathan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Chapter Forty Two, Part Two, of Power Ecclesiastical. This part of the power of the keys by which men were thrust out from the kingdom of God is that which is called excommunication, and to excommunicate is, in the original, to cast out of the synagogue, that is, out of the place of divine service, a word drawn from the custom of the Jews, to cast out of their synagogues such as they thought in manners or doctrine contagious, as lepers were by the law of Moses, separated from the congregation of Israel, till such time as they should be by the priest pronounced clean. The use and effect of excommunication, whilst it was not yet strengthened with the civil power, was no more than that they who were not excommunicate were to avoid the company of them that were. It was not enough to repute them as heathen, that never had been Christians, for with such they might eat and drink with excommunicate persons, they might not do, as appeareth by the words of St. Paul, where he telleth them he had formerly forbidden them to company with fornicators, 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 9, and 10. But, because that could not be without going out of the world, he restraineth it to such fornicators, and otherwise vicious persons, as were of the brethren. With such a one, he saith, They ought not to keep company, no, not to eat. And this is no more than our Saviour saith. Let him be to thee as a heathen and as a publican. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 For publicans, which signifieth farmers and receivers of the revenue of the commonwealth, were so hated and detested by the Jews that were to pay it, as that publican and sinner were taken amongst them for the same thing, insomuch as when our Saviour accepted the invitation of Zacchaeus, a publican, though it were to convert him, yet it was objected to him as a crime. And therefore, when our Saviour, to heathen, added publican, he did forbid them to eat with a man excommunicate. As for keeping them out of their synagogues, or places of assembly, they had no power to do it, but that of the owner of the place, whether he were Christian or heathen. And because all places are by right in the dominion of the commonwealth, as well he that was excommunicated as he that never was baptized, might enter into them by commission from the civil magistrate, as Paul before his conversion entered into their synagogues at Damascus to apprehend Christians, men and women, and to carry them bound to Jerusalem by commission from the high priest. Acts, chapter 9, verse 2 by which it appears that upon a Christian that should become an apostate, in a place where the civil power did persecute or not assist the Church, the effect of excommunication had nothing in it, neither of damage in this world, nor of terror. Not of terror, because of their unbelief, nor of damage, because they returned thereby into the favour of the world, and in the world to come were to be in no worse estate than they which never had believed. The damage redounded rather to the Church, by provocation of them they cast out to a freer execution of their malice. Excommunication, therefore, had its effect only upon those that believed that Jesus Christ was to come again in glory to reign over and to judge both the quick and the dead, and should therefore refuse entrance into his kingdom to those whose sins were retained, that is, to those that were excommunicated by the Church. And thence it is, that St. Paul calleth excommunication a delivery of the excommunicate person to satan for without the kingdom of christ all other kingdoms after judgment are comprehended in the kingdom of satan this is it that the faithful stood in fear of as long as they stood excommunicate that is to say in an estate wherein their sins were not forgiven whereby we may understand that excommunication in the time that Christian religion was not authorized by the civil power was used only for a correction of manners, not of errors in opinion, for it is a punishment whereof none could be sensible but such as believed and expected the coming again of our Saviour to judge the world, and they who so believed needed no other opinion, but only uprightness of life, to be saved. There lieth excommunication for injustice, as... If thy brother offend thee, tell him privately, then with witnesses. Lastly, tell the church, and then if he obey not, let him be to thee as an heathen man and a publican. Matthew, chapter 18, verses fifteen, sixteen, and 17. And there lieth excommunication for a scandalous life, as, If a man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one ye are not to eat. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. But to excommunicate a man that held this foundation, that Jesus was the Christ, for difference of opinion in other points, by which that foundation was not destroyed, there appeareth no authority in the scripture, nor example in the apostles. There is indeed in St. Paul a text that seemeth to be to the contrary, A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. Ibid, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. For a heretic is he that, being a member of the church, teacheth nevertheless some private opinion which the church has forbidden. And such a one, St. Paul adviseth Titus, after the first and second admonition, to reject. But to reject in this place is not to excommunicate the man, But to give over admonishing him, to let him alone, to set by disputing with him, as one that is to be convinced only by himself. The same Apostle saith, Foolish and unlearned questions avoid. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty three. The word avoid in this place, and reject in the former, is the same in the original, paraito, but foolish questions may be set by without excommunication. And again, Avoid foolish questions, Titus, chapter 3, verse 9, where the original, peristasso, set them by, is equivalent to the former word, reject. There is no other place that can so much as colorably be drawn to countenance the casting out of the church faithful men, such as believed the foundation, only for a singular superstructure of their own, proceeding perhaps from a good and pious conscience, but, on the contrary, all such places as command avoiding such disputes are written for a lesson to pastors, such as Timothy and Titus were, not to make new articles of faith by determining every small controversy which oblige men to a needless burden of conscience, or provoke them to break the union of the church, which lesson the apostles themselves observed well. Saint Peter and Saint Paul, through their controversy were great, as we may read in Galatians chapter two verse eleven yet they did not cast one another out of the Church. Nevertheless, during the Apostles' time, there were other pastors that observed it not, as Diotrephes, who cast out of the Church such as St. John himself, thought fit to be received into it, out of a pride he took in pre-eminence. Third John, chapter 9, etc. So early it was that vainglory and ambition had found entrance into the Church of Christ that a man be liable to excommunication, there be many conditions requisite. As first, that he be a member of some commonality, that is to say, of some lawful assembly, that is to say, of some Christian church that hath power to judge of the cause for which he is to be excommunicated. For where there is no community, there can be no excommunication, nor where there is no power to judge, can there be any power to give sentence. From hence it followeth, that one Church cannot be excommunicated by another, for either they have equal power to excommunicate each other, in which case excommunication is not discipline, nor an act of authority, but schism, and dissolution of charity, or one is so subordinate to the other, as that they both have but one voice, and then they be but one Church, and the part excommunicated is no more a Church, but a dissolute number of individual persons. And because the sentence of excommunication importeth an advice not to keep company, nor so much as to eat with him that is excommunicate, if a sovereign prince or assembly be excommunicate, the sentence is of no effect. For all subjects are bound to be in the company and presence of their own sovereign, when he requireth it by the law of nature, nor can they lawfully either expel him from any place of his own dominion, whether profane or holy, nor go out of his dominion without his leave much less, if he call them to that honour, refuse to eat with him. And as to other princes and states, because they are not parts of one and the same congregation, they need not any other sentence to keep them from keeping company, with the state excommunicate. For the very institution, as it uniteth many men into one community, so it dissociateth one community from another. So that excommunication is not needful for keeping kings and states asunder, nor has any further effect, than is in the nature of policy itself, unless it be to instigate princes to war upon one another, nor is the excommunication of a Christian subject that obeyeth the laws of his own sovereign, whether Christian or heathen, of any effect; for if he believe that Jesus is the Christ, he hath the spirit of God, John chapter five, verse one, and God dwelleth in him, and he in God, chapter four, verse fifteen. But he that hath the spirit of God, he that dwelleth in God, he in whom God dwelleth, can receive no harm by the excommunication of men. Therefore, he that believeth Jesus to be the Christ, is free from all the dangers threatened to persons excommunicate. He that believeth it not, is no Christian. Therefore a true and unfeigned Christian is not liable to excommunication. Nor he also that is a professed Christian, till his hypocrisy appear in his manners, that is, Till his behaviour be contrary to the law of his sovereign, which is the rule of manners, and which Christ and his apostles have commanded us to be subject to. For the church cannot judge of manners, but by external actions, which actions can never be unlawful, but when they are against the law of commonwealth. If a man's father, or mother, or master be excommunicate, yet are not the children forbidden to keep them company, nor to eat with them? For that were for the most part to oblige them not to eat at all, for want of means to get food, and to authorize them to disobey their parents and masters, contrary to the precept of the Apostles. In some, the power of excommunication cannot be extended further than to the end for which the Apostles and pastors of the Church have their commission from our Saviour, which is not to rule by command and coercion, but by teaching and direction of men in the way of salvation in the world to come. And as a master in any science may abandon his scholar when he obstinately neglecteth the practice of his rules, but not accuse him of injustice because he was never bound to obey him, so a teacher of Christian doctrine may abandon his disciples that obstinately continue in an unchristian life, but he cannot say they do him wrong, because they are not obliged to obey him, or to a teacher that shall so complain, may be applied the answer of God to Samuel in the like place. They have not rejected thee, but me. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7 Excommunication, therefore, when it wanteth the assistance of the civil power, as it doth when a Christian state or prince is excommunicate by a foreign authority, is without effect, and consequently ought to be without terror. The name of Fulman Excommunicationis, that is, the thunderbolt of excommunication, proceeded from an imagination of the Bishop of Rome, which first used it, that he was King of Kings, as the heathen made Jupiter King of the Gods, and assigned him in their poems and pictures a thunderbolt, wherewith to subdue and punish the giants that should dare to deny his power, which imagination was grounded on two errors, one that the kingdom of Christ is of this world, contrary to our Saviour's own words, my kingdom is not of this world, John chapter 18, verse 36, the other, that he is Christ's vicar, not only over his own subjects, but over all the Christians of the world, whereof there is no ground in Scripture, and the contrary shall be proved in its due place. St. Paul, coming to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom he preached was the Christ. Acts, chapter 17, verse 2, 3. The Scriptures here mentioned were the Scriptures of the Jews, that is, the Old Testament. The men to whom he was to prove that Jesus was the Christ, and risen again from the dead, were also Jews, and did believe already that they were the word of God. Hereupon, as it is in the fourth verse, some of them believed, and, as it is in the fifth verse, some believed not. What was the reason, when they all believed the scripture, that they did not all believe alike, but that some approved, others disapproved, the interpretation of St. Paul that cited them, and every one interpreted them to himself. It was this. St. Paul came to them without any legal commission, in the manner of one that would not command, but persuade, which he must needs do, either by miracles, as Moses did to the Israelites in Egypt, that they might see his authority in God's works, or by reasoning from the already received scripture, that they might see the truth of his doctrine in God's word. But whosoever persuadeth, by reasoning from principle written, maketh him, to whom he speaketh judge, both of the meaning of those principles, and also of the force of his inferences upon them. If these Jews of Thessalonica were not, who else was the judge of what St. Paul alleged out of the Scripture? If St. Paul, what need he to quote any places to prove his doctrine? It had been enough to have said, I find it so in the Scripture, that is to say, in your laws, of which I am interpreter, as sent by Christ. The interpreter, therefore, of the scripture, to whose interpretation the Jews of Thessalonica were bound to stand, could be none. Every one might believe or not believe, according as the allegation seemed to himself to be agreeable or not agreeable to the meaning of the places alleged. And generally, in all cases of the world, he that pretendeth any proof maketh judge of his proof him to whom he addresseth his speech. And as to the case of the Jews in particular, they were bound by express words to receive the determination of all hard questions from the priests and judges of Israel, for the time being. Deuteronomy 17. But this is to be understood of the Jews, that were yet unconverted. For the conversion of the Gentiles, there was no use of alleging the Scriptures, which they believed not. The Apostles therefore laboured by reason to confute their idolatry, and that done to persuade them to the faith of Christ by their testimony of his life and resurrection, so that there could not yet be any controversy concerning the authority to interpret scripture, seeing no man was obliged, during his infidelity, to follow any man's interpretation of any scripture except his sovereign's interpretation of the laws of his country. Let us now consider the conversion itself, and see what there was therein that could be cause of such an obligation. Men were converted to no other thing than to the belief of that which the Apostles preached. And the Apostles preached nothing but that Jesus was the Christ, that is to say, the King that was to save them and reign over them eternally in the world to come, and consequently that he was not dead, but risen again from the dead and gone up into heaven, and should come again one day to judge the world, which also should rise again to be judged, and reward every man according to his works. None of them preached that himself, or any other apostle, was such an interpreter of the scripture as all that became Christians ought to take their interpretation for law. For to interpret the laws is part of the administration of a present kingdom, which the apostles had not. They prayed then, and all other pastors since, let thy kingdom come, and exhorted their converts to obey their then ethnic princes. The New Testament was not yet published in one body. every of the evangelists was interpreter of his own gospel, and every apostle of his own epistle and of the Old Testament, our Saviour himself saith to the Jews, "Search the scriptures, for in them ye think to have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me." John chapter five verse thirty nine If he had not meant that they should interpret them, he would not have bidden them to take thence the proof of his being the Christ. He would have either interpreted them himself, or referred them to the interpretation of the priests. When a difficulty arose, the apostles and elders of the church assembled themselves together, and determined what should be preached and taught, and how they should interpret the scriptures to the people, but took not from the people the liberty to read and interpret them to themselves. The Apostles sent diverse letters to the churches and other writings for their instruction, which had been in vain if they had not allowed them to interpret, that is, to consider the meaning of them. And as it was in the Apostles' time, it must be till such time as there should be pastors that could authorize an interpreter whose interpretation should generally be stood to. But that could not be till kings were pastors, or pastors-kings. There are two senses wherein a writing may be said to be canonical, For canon signifieth a rule, and a rule is a precept, by which a man is guided and directed in any action whatsoever. Such precepts, though given by a teacher to his disciple, or a counsellor to his friend, without power to compel them to observe them, are nevertheless canons, because they are rules. But when they are given by one whom he that receiveth them is bound to obey, there are those canons not only rules, but laws. The question therefore here is of the power to make the scriptures which are the rules of Christian faith, laws. That part of the scripture which was first law was the Ten Commandments, written in two tables of stone and delivered by God himself to Moses, and by Moses made known to the people. Before that time there was no written law of God, who, as yet having not chosen any people to be his peculiar kingdom, had given no law to men. But the law of nature, that is to say, the precepts of natural reason, written in every man's own heart of these two tables the first containeth the law of sovereignty one that they should not obey nor honour the gods of other nations in other words non habeas deus alienos corum me that is thou shalt not have for gods the gods that other nations worship but only me whereby they were forbidden to obey or honour as their king and governor any god than him that spake unto them by Moses, and afterwards by the high priest. 2. That they should not make any image to represent him, that is to say, they were not to choose to themselves neither in heaven nor in earth any representative of their own fancying, but obey Moses and Aaron, whom he had appointed to that office. 3. That they should not take the name of God in vain, that is, they should not speak rashly of their king, nor dispute his right nor the commissions of Moses and Aaron, his lieutenants, for that they should every seventh day abstain from their ordinary labour, and employ that time in doing him public honour. The second table containeth the duty of one man toward another, as to honour parents, not to kill, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to corrupt judgment by false witness, and finally, not so much as design in their heart THE DOING OF ANY INJURY ONE TO ANOTHER. THE QUESTION NOW IS, WHO IT WAS THAT GAVE THESE WRITTEN TABLES THE OBLIGATORY FORCE OF LAWS? THERE IS NO DOUBT, BUT THEY WERE MADE LAWS BY GOD HIMSELF. BUT BECAUSE A LAW OBLIGES NOT, NOR IS LAW TO ANY BUT TO THEM THAT ACKNOWLEDGE IT TO BE THE ACT OF THE SOVEREIGN, HOW COULD THE PEOPLE OF ISRAEL, THAT WERE FORBIDDEN TO APPROACH THE MOUNTAIN TO HEAR WHAT GOD SAID TO MOSES, BE OBLIGED TO OBEDIENCE TO ALL THOSE LAWS WHICH MOSES PROPOUNDED TO THEM, Some of them were indeed the laws of nature, as all the second table, and therefore to be acknowledged for God's laws, not to the Israelites alone, but to all people, but of those that were peculiar to the Israelites, as those of the first table, the question remains, saving that they had obliged themselves, presently after the propounding of them, to obey Moses in these words, Speak thou to us, and we will hear thee, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Exodus chapter twenty verse nineteen. It was therefore only Moses then, and after him the high priest, whom by Moses God declared should administer this His peculiar kingdom, that had on earth the power to make His short scripture of the Decalogue to be law in the commonwealth of Israel. But Moses and Aaron and the succeeding high priests were the civil sovereigns. Therefore, hitherto the canonizing or making of the scripture law belonged to the civil sovereign. The judicial law, that is to say, the laws that God prescribed to the magistrates of Israel for the rule of their administration of justice, and of the sentence or judgments they should pronounce in pleas between man and man, and the Levitical law, that is to say, the rule that God prescribed, touching the rites and ceremonies of the priests and Levites, were all delivered to them by Moses only, and therefore also became laws by virtue of the same province of obedience to Moses whether these laws were then written or not written but dictated to the people by moses after his 40 days being with god in the mount by word of mouth is not expressed in the text but they were all positive laws and equivalent to holy scriptures and made canonical by moses the civil sovereign after the israelites were come into the plains of moab over against jericho and ready to enter into the land of promise Moses to the former laws added divers others, which therefore are called Deuteronomy, that is, second laws, and are, as it is written, the word of a covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse one. For having explained those former laws in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, he addeth others and begin at the twelfth chapter, and continue to the end of twenty-sixth, of the same book. This law they were commanded to write upon great stones plastered over, at their passing over Jordan. Ibid, chapter 27. This law also was written by Moses himself in a book, and delivered into the hands of the priests and to the elders of Israel. Ibid, chapter 31, verse 9. And commanded to be put in the side of the ark. Ibid, chapter 31, verse 26. For in the ark itself was nothing but the Ten Commandments. This was the law which Moses commanded the kings of Israel should keep a copy of. Hibid chapter 17, verse 18, And this is the law which, having been long time lost, was found again in the temple in the time of Josiah, and by his authority received for the law of God. But both Moses at the writing and Josiah at the recovery thereof had both of them the civil sovereignty. Hitherto, therefore, the power of making scripture canonical was in the civil sovereign. Besides this book of the law, there was no other book, from the time of Moses, till after the captivity, received amongst the Jews for the law of God. For the prophets, except a few, lived in the time of the captivity itself, and the rest lived but a little before it, and were so far from having their prophecies generally received for laws, as their persons were persecuted, partly by false prophets, and partly by the kings who were seduced by them and this book itself which was confirmed by josiah for the law of god and with it all the history of the works of god was lost in the captivity and sack of the city of jerusalem as appears by that of second esdras chapter fourteen verse twenty one thy law is burnt therefore no man knoweth the things that are done of thee or the works that shall begin and before the captivity between the time when the law was lost, which is not mentioned in the scripture, but may probably be thought to be the time of Rehoboam, when Shishak, king of Egypt, took the spoil of the temple, 1 Kings 14 verse 26, and the time of Josiah, when it was found again, they had no written word of God, but ruled according to their own discretion, or by the discretion of such as each of them esteemed prophets. From hence we may infer that the scriptures of the Old Testament, which we have at this day, were not canonical, nor a law unto the Jews, till the renovation of their covenant with God, at the return from the captivity, and restoration of their commonwealth under Esdras. But from that time forward they were accounted the law of the Jews, and for such translated into Greek by seventy elders of Judea, and put into the library of Ptolemy at Alexandria, and approved for the word of God. Now seeing Esdras was the high priest, and the high priest was their civil sovereign, it is manifest that the scriptures were never made laws, but by the sovereign civil power. By the writings of the fathers that lived in the time before the Christian religion was received and authorized by Constantine the Emperor, we may find that the books we now have of the New Testament were held by the Christians of that time, except a few in respect of whose paucity the rest were called the catholic church and others heretics for the dictates of the holy ghost and consequently for the canon or rule of faith such was the reverence and opinion they had of their teachers as generally the reverence that the disciples bear to their first masters in all manner of doctrine they receive from them is not small therefore there is no doubt But when St. Paul wrote to the churches, he had converted, or any other apostle or disciple of Christ, to those which had then embraced Christ, they received those their writings for the true Christian doctrine. But in that time, when not the power and authority of the teacher, but the faith of the hearer, caused them to receive it, it was not the apostle that made their own writings canonical, but every convert made them so to himself but the question here is not what any christian made a law or canon to himself which he might again reject by the same right he received it but what was so made a canon to them as without injustice they could not do anything contrary thereunto that the new testament should in this sense be canonical that is to say a law in any place where the law of the commonwealth had not made it so is contrary to the nature of a law for a law as hath been already shown is the commandment of that man or assembly, to whom we have given sovereign authority to make such rules for the direction of our actions, as he shall think fit, and to punish us when we do anything contrary to the same. And therefore any other man shall offer unto us any other rules, which the sovereign ruler hath not prescribed. They are but counsel and advice, which, whether good or bad, he that is counseled may without injustice refuse to observe and when contrary to the laws already established, without injustice cannot observe, how good soever he conceiveth it to be. I say he cannot in this case observe the same in his actions, nor in his discourse with other men, though he may without blame believe his private teachers, and wish he had the liberty to practice their advice, and that it were publicly received for law. For internal faith is in its own nature invisible, and consequently exempted from all human jurisdiction, whereas the words and actions that proceed from it, as breaches of our civil obedience, are injustice, both before God and man. Seeing then, our Saviour hath denied his kingdom to be in this world, seeing he hath said he came not to judge, but to save the world, he hath not subjected us to other laws than those of the commonwealth, that is, the Jews to the law of Moses, which he saith he came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew, chapter 5 and to other nations to the laws of their several sovereigns, and all men to the laws of nature, the observing whereof both he himself and his apostles have in their teaching recommended to us as a necessary condition of being admitted by him in the last day into his eternal kingdom, wherein shall be protection and life everlasting. Seeing that our Saviour and his apostles left not new laws to oblige us in this world, but new doctrine to prepare us for the next, the books of the New Testament which contained that doctrine, until obedience to them was commanded by them that God had given power to on earth to be legislators. Were not obligatory canons, that is, laws, but only good and safe advice for the direction of sinners in the way to salvation, which every man might take and refuse at his own peril, without injustice. Again, our Saviour Christ's commission to his apostles and disciples was to proclaim his kingdom, not present, but to come, and to teach all nations, and to baptize them that should believe, and to enter into the houses of them that should receive them, and where they were not received, to shake off the dust of their feet against them, but not to call for fire from heaven to destroy them, nor to compel them to obedience by the sword, in all which there is nothing of power, but of persuasion. He sent them out as sheep unto wolves, not as kings to their subjects, they had not in commission to make laws but to obey and teach obedience to laws made and consequently they could not make their writings obligatory canons without the help of the sovereign civil power and therefore the scripture of the new testament is there only law when the lawful civil power hath made it so and there also the king or sovereign maketh it a law to himself by which he subjecteth himself not to the doctor or apostle that converted him but to god himself and his son jesus christ as immediately as did the apostles themselves that which may seem to give the new testament in respect of those that have embraced christian doctrine the force of laws in the times and places of persecution is the decrees they made amongst themselves in their synods for we read the style of the council of the apostles the elders and the whole church in this manner it seemed good to the holy ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, Acts chapter fifteen, verse twenty-eight, etc., which is a style that signifieth a power to lay a burden on them that had received their doctrine. Now, to lay a burden on another seemeth the same as to oblige, and therefore the acts of that council were laws to the then Christians. Nevertheless, they were no more laws than are these other precepts. Repent. Be baptized, keep the commandments, believe the gospel, come unto me, sell all that thou hast, give it to the poor, and follow me, which are not commands, but invitations and callings of men to Christianity, like that of Isaiah. Ho! Every man that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, come, and buy wine and milk without money. Isaiah, chapter 55. 1. For first, the Apostle's power was no other than that of our Saviour, to invite men to embrace the kingdom of God, which they themselves acknowledged for a kingdom, not present, but to come, and they that have no kingdom can make no laws. And secondly, if their acts of counsel were laws, they could not without sin be disobeyed. But we read not anywhere that they who received not the doctrine of Christ did therein sin, but that they died in their sins. That is, that their sins against the laws to which they owed obedience were not pardoned, and those laws were the laws of nature, and the civil laws of the State, whereto every Christian man had by pact submitted himself, and therefore by the burden which the Apostles might lay on, such as they had converted, are not to be understood laws, but conditions, proposed to those who sought salvation, which they might accept, or refuse at their own peril, without a new sin." though not without the hazard of being condemned and excluded out of the kingdom of god for their sins past and therefore of infidels st john saith not the wrath of god shall come upon them but the wrath of god remaineth upon them john chapter 3 verse 36 and not that they shall be condemned but that they are condemned already ibid chapter 3 verse 18 nor can it be conceived that the benefit of faith is remission of sins unless we conceive withal that the damage of infidelity is the retention of the same sins. But to what end is it, may some man ask, that the apostles and other pastors of the church, after their time, should meet together to agree upon what doctrine should be taught, both for faith and manners, if no men were obliged to observe their decrees? To this may be answered that the apostles and elders of that council were obliged, even by their entrance into it, to teach the doctrine, therein concluded, and decreed to be taught. So far forth as no precedent law, to which they were obliged to yield obedience, was to the contrary, but not that all other Christians should be obliged to observe what they taught. For though they might deliberate what each of them should teach, yet they could not deliberate what others should do, unless their assembly had a legislative power, which none could have but civil sovereigns. For though God be the Sovereign of all the world, we are not bound to take for his law whatsoever is propounded by every man in his name, nor anything contrary to the civil law which God hath expressly commanded us to obey. End of chapter 42, part 2. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards